He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Father, again, we thank you for your plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world, that you chose to redeem a people for yourself, that you sent your Son as the only acceptable sacrifice on our behalf, that he came obediently, came and suffered, came and walked a perfect life, obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. Father, we thank you that as we have put our faith and trust in Christ, that we are completely secure, completely forgiven. And we have been made part of your body, part of your family. Thank you for the precious spirit that resides within us, that illumines our minds, that gives us understanding, that gives us the power and the strength to be able to be transformed. Lord, thank you for that gift him as him so that we might continue to change. Again, we ask that the glory would go to you as we've just read that in all things Christ would have the preeminence. Lord, we know, we know that Christ is enough. He's enough for our justification. He's enough for our sanctification, even our glorification. That as long as we are in Christ, it's enough. May we glory in that truth. May we be able to worship you even more effectively because we know that truth. And as we look at this, this passage for the last time, remind us it's, that it's all because of Christ. Again, guide our thinking for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelations chapters 2 and 3. 2 and 3. Uh, you might want the outline. It's just a simple outline in your bulletin. What I chose to do um, as the week went on was rather than get to the rapture, we're just going to, I was going to try to do two parts. I'm only going to basically look at a, a final look at the church, okay? We're going to wrap up chapters 1 through 3 today, and then starting next week, get into chapter 4. Now again, chapters 2 and 3 are really critical for the church. As one man said, this portion of Scripture has been strangely neglected. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are sometimes strangely neglected. They, pe pastors, for whatever reason, don't want to get into the book of Revelation. Well, I know the reason, because there is controversy there. He goes on, While many turn to the epistles of Paul and other portions of the New Testament for church truth, often the letters to the seven churches, though coming directly from Christ himself, and being climactic in character are completely ignored. <laughs> this neglect has contributed to churches today not conforming to the perfect will of God. Yeah, think about it. Just take the New Testament. Obviously, Old Testament coming Messiah sets everything up. 
New Testament. Four Gospels. Well, who, who, who is that about? The Lord of the church. Acts, the history of the church. The epistles, how the church should act. See, you need the end story. The end story comes in chapters 1 through 3. Because there you see a vision of the Lord. And then actually seven actual churches that existed back in the first century, but also who have lessons for us. So that's why we've been studying it. Now we've taken about eight weeks to go through the seven churches. And that's because it is so important. It is critical. We've learned critical things about our lives and the church's life by studying the book, right? The seven, the seven churches. But for today... At this point, once you go between chapters 3 and chapter 4, by the way, if you, if you like to highlight, you might want to put a line right there and just put an R, perhaps, or rapture. I believe that's where the rapture happens. And we're going to see that next week. Between chapter 3 and chapter 4, actually, just think about the, the breakdown. Chapter 1 is a vision of Christ in heaven. Chapters 2 and 3, we're on the earth. We're looking at local churches. Chapter 4 is back into heaven. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Chapter 5 is heaven. Chapter 6 is he opens up the scroll that's Christ but now we're back on earth in chapter 6. Basically chapter 6 through 18 is on earth. And then Christ in chapter 19 comes back with us and then we'll figure out the rest. But the point is, is that we're going from heaven from heaven to earth. Chapter 4 back to heaven. 5 heaven. Chapter 6, heaven, come back to earth. So you've got to start seeing how this is playing out because it's, it's really quite obvious once you start looking for it. But this is the last message of our Lord uh, to the church. Okay? In fact, what's interesting is in chapter 1 of Revelation, you see the word church used four times. Four times, like chapter, four, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4, to the seven churches. Uh, verse 11, I write this, send it to the seven churches. And you see it in verses, what, 19 or verse uh, 20. Four different times the word church is used in chapter 1. Now in chapters 2 to 4 of the churches, we see the word church. And then in chapter 3 to 3 of the churches, we use, see the word church. You don't see the word church used again until chapter 22 Verse 16. You might want to turn there. This is the last time the actual word church is used. Now, if, if you're turning, stop at verse 9, uh, chapter 19. Because it says, he, he comes back. Let's see here, where is it? Uh, the judges. We are coming back with him in chapter 19, verse 11. Saw the heaven opened, and behold, the white horse, and he who sat on it. And he judges and he makes war. Okay, We're with him there. Okay, Look at verse 13. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in, and his name is called the Word of God. And out of his, you know, we are with him in that. But as far as the word church, chapter 2, verse 16, uh, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Okay, So you can say it this way. Whereas chapters... Uh, the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, were to the church. What we find out in chapter 22, verse 16, is the whole book was written for the church. But the church is absent. <laughs> okay? 
Once we get into heaven, we see that I believe that we're represented with the 24 elders in chapter 4 and 5. There's worship of the Father. There's worship of the Son. But now we have a scroll and Christ opens the scroll. And now those are the judgments. That's what we call the tribulation and the great tribulation. And the church is missing. We don't see the word church. You don't see the church. What happened to the church? Until chapter 19, we come back. And chapter 22:16, we find out that um, the, the book was written for us, for our admonition, for our encouragement. So in one sense, as it were, our Lord's message to the church ends at this point. That's what I want you to think about. That's why I'm taking one final message and actually call it a final look. Because as, now again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn about the tribulation. That gives us great comfort. I mean, all the things of the revelation give us courage and comfort and boldness and confidence to live in this present age. But as far as to church specific, this is the last word of our Lord uh, to a specific local church. Okay, that's all I'll say. So let's look at some lessons. Uh, and I'll give you seven. We'll see how many we can get through. We will end today. Okay, by the way, we're not, this is not going to be part two. It's, Lessons learned from the seven churches. First of all, and again, you just, we're just going to be flipping back and forth in Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, we're just going to kind of do a summary. Uh, sometimes, you know, we get so specific on looking at the leaves of the tree, we kind of forget the forest. We just want to be, we want to kind of do an, an overview. Uh, as it were, if you're in the plain, you know, 25,000 feet up and just looking down. Just, that's one final overview. The first thing is this. This is one of the major lessons that we've learned. A local church needs godly leaders. Now you say, well, where do you see that? Because each time, starting in chapter 2, going all the way, every seven, seven times it says, to the angel, and by the way, we, we, we realize that the word angel there is messenger, uh, most likely, 99.9% .9 sure he's talking to the pastor, okay? To the angel of the church, let's say chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesus, and he keeps going through there. You know, to the church of Smyrna, to the angel, and to the angel, and to the angel. Again, to the pastor. And I just gave you a few thoughts. One is that church leaders are appointed by God. Again, Acts 20, verse 28 says, uh, Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the, which, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, we know in Acts 20, it's Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. And there he's saying, listen, it's the Holy Spirit who has made you overseers. That's why in our church we don't have term limits. People have asked, well, why don't you have term limits? Why don't you get an elder on for five years and let him go off? Because it's the Holy Spirit that has made you an overseer. That doesn't mean that you can't step off for various reasons. And at times men have. Oh, we, you just heard, like, uh, Will stepped off, and one of the things he told me, he said, I'll be back. I'm not saying that you, you, you can't have a respite. I'm just saying we don't put it in our constitution as such. People need to periodically step off. But, but one of the things we've learned from these seven churches is Christ, through John, speaks directly to the pastor. He goes on in Acts 20, verse 28, he that's the Holy Spirit who has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which Christ purchased with His own blood. And when He purchased it, that means that the church, the local church, those who are believers, are precious, are loved, <coughs> are cherished, 
are His and are Christ. I mean, this is a high and holy calling to, to take care of the church of Christ. Not as the shepherd, not as the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd. We are simply under shepherds. But again, um, very, very important. Now you say, well, how do you get all that? Because the you, and to the angel, and then he starts and says, I know your works. It's in the singular. See, he's not just talking to the church. He's also talking specifically to the pastor. And I could say pastor as a, you know, singular as far as a board. As um, Richard Mayhew says, uh, while the letter is written to be read in the church, it is specifically addressed to the leadership. Everywhere you appears in the English version, it is in the second person singular. Jesus is holding the, Jesus is holding the God-appointed leadership responsible for communicating and correcting the deficiencies in his church. That puts it on a different level, doesn't it? That's why when we pray as elders, we pray, Lord, give us your will. Because I certainly don't want to make decisions based on my will. Because I know I'm being held accountable. So, again, the first thing we learn here is that the church needs leaders. I'm going to add in, needs to have godly leaders. If you go over to Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says this, Remember, or keep in mind, keep in mind, by the way, is it, is it easy to forget? It is very easy to forget. So the writer to the Hebrews says, Remember those who rule over you. And the word rule there is not your normal word for rule. It's actually used in other places for like in Philippians where it says, Esteem others better than yourself. The idea is this, that when it comes to the leadership of the church, esteem them. All right, now, I've got to stop you right there because you're going to say, oh, I see, you're in it for a selfish reason. No, no, no. The idea is this. Um, you want to look at your leadership and esteem them in the sense of value. Like, if, if the body of elders determines to go in this direction, then by esteeming means, or remember that those who rule over you, that yes, they have value. I want to honor their direction because it's coming from God. That's all I'm trying to say. It's really... See, because we live in a, a society, don't we, that really cuts at uh, leadership. Always a... Uh, always, um, uh, what type of an eye? Uh, what type of an eye? Um, like uh, a suspicious eye on leadership. You know, corporate boards, they're corrupt. Politicians, they're corrupt. You know, we look around, anybody that's trying to lead anybody, they're corrupt. D don't we get that idea? I do. I can't stand even listening to news anymore because everybody's corrupt, it seems. Well, when it comes to uh, the, the rulers in the church, it better not be. <coughs> and we better be able to esteem those who are seeking to lead because they're under shepherds of Christ, right? Do you see how that works again? See, see how hard that is? Because we have a suspicious eye towards leadership. Especially, I think, in America. So Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, who have those, or whose faith follow, and the word follow is minio, which we get the word mimic. In other words, mimic their faith, faith, follow their faith, considering the outcome of their conduct. What is this writer saying? Watch your leaders, esteem them, don't have a suspicious eye, watch their faith and follow it. 
Therefore, we need to be men who are good examples. That's why I said a local church needs godly leaders, not just leaders. If you're in Hebrews 13, go down to verse 17. It says, Obey those who rule over you and submit to them, for they... For as those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. See, they watch out for your soul. I don't think I read that part, but they watch out for your soul. So the idea with leaders is obey them. It's interesting, the word obey is in the middle. Um, it's in the middle voice, which means this, you do it of yourselves. Actually, when it comes to... Uh, Women, wives, submit to your, uh, to your own husbands. It's in the middle voice as well. Um, or te- Wait, voice tense. tense. Um, the idea is this. You do it of yourself. See, when it comes to uh, husbands and wives, the Bible does not say this. Husbands, you're the head and you better get her whipped up into shape you know, so she's submitting to you. It's actually in the middle voice. You know, ladies, let me do Donna. <laughs> Submit to him. But do it of your own accord. Not because he's telling you have to. In fact, Lee, don't say it. Just let me deal with the wife. You know, husband, stay out of it. Please. It's, the, it's between the wife and the Lord. That's really how the scripture sets it up. You know, I hear men, see, this is what it says. You need to submit. I just want to tell you, will you shut up? You're just getting in the way of the Holy Spirit because your attitude is wrong. All right. Well, it's the same thing with it's the same thing with the uh, how this writer, the writer of Hebrews, tells the congregation: obey, but do it of yourself. Not because they're telling you and pointing, and you have to follow us. No, no. Why? Why do you do it? Because they watch over your soul. Why? Because they have to give an account. Why? Because if they if you don't do it, I mean, let them do it with joy, not grief. Why? Because it would be profitable for you to have joy for them to do it with joy. But if you're making it hard, they got to give an account. It's not profitable for you. It makes perfect sense. So the Lord knocks on our hearts, mine including, by the way, because I'm still in submission to the elder board, even though I'm one of the elders, and says, John, learn to submit. Doesn't, I don't have to have Steve Weck, and he never has done this, you know, come to me, you know, John, you need to... No. The Lord, between, it's between God and I. Whether, see, I know personally, and again, I'm part of the board, so, but I know personally if I'm esteeming and praying for and saying, you know what, I, see, I, see the, the, I don't see perfection, but I see the example in their life and I want to follow, Right? And so when I'm in an elder meeting, they, they go in a different direction. You know what I've learned over time? You know what? Yep, okay. And that's what you think. I may not totally understand or agree, but I'll go in that direction with you. Right? I mean, unless it's a doctrinal thing. So again, what's one of the big things we've learned? We need to have godly leaders. Let me give you one last thing about the, the shepherds. Because, you know, it's very hard to be a shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter himself, an elder, but also... I mean, an apostle, but also an elder, says this of, to the elders there. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion. Compulsion means like this. You know, I come up to somebody and say, You know what? I think you need to be a deacon. I, need, I think you need to be an elder. You need to be an elder. <laughs> no, no. Not because you're forced to do it. Not because of guilt. Oh, we only have three elders. We need another elder. 
No, but willingly. In other words, from the heart. Not for dishonest gain. That means money, prestige, power. But eagerly and not as lords. Actually, that's power. Persons should never get into leadership of the church because of power um, over those entrusted to him. But, but being examples to the flock. And then when the chief shepherd shall appear, he, they, those who have served well will receive the crown of glory. Oh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why we should, you know, you have elders and they want to do it well because there's a reward at the end. There is a reward. So I think one of the things we've learned and, is that we need to have godly leaders. One of the reasons these churches fell into problems was because they did not have godly leadership. That's what I'm trying to say. Jesus looks at them and says, there's a problem. You've got Jezebel amongst you and you're not taking care of it. You've got the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You've got the teaching of Balaam. Well, whose problem is it? It's not just the congregation generally. He's pointing out specific people, specific leaders, and said, you're the issue. You're not dealing with what you ought to be dealing with. So, that's the first. Number two, Jesus Christ must be at the center of the church. Did you notice that to each church, it says, these things says, or he who is, and we found a characteristic or multiple characteristics of Christ. Keep drawing back. See, he first of all pointed to the pastor and then generally to the church, but then he had presented himself. Christ presented himself. Like in Ephesians, he's, he says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, to Smyrna, the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And each one of the churches, Christ is presented. Christ is presented. Why? Because Christ is the center. It goes back to that passage I read before we prayed. I mean, we need to be a Christ-centered people. A Christ-centered church. It's all about Christ. That is so easy to say and so very difficult to do. You have your selfish flesh fighting against that at every... It's almost like this crying, whiny baby. No, he's not! That's what the flesh keeps saying. Yes, he is. That's why Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, for by him, verse 16, and through him and for him and in him all things consist. Why? That he might have the preeminence. That he might... And so, Jesus Christ must be at the center because he's the head of the church. It's, it's his... And, and, and when we looked at the different characteristics... I hope you saw this with, the, with each church. Whatever, however he refers to himself met a need in that church. Okay, so let's just take one example. To this church of Smyrna, now that's chapter 2, verse 8. So if you're in Revelation 2, just go to verse 8. Second part, <coughs> how does he introduce himself? The first and the last who was dead and came to life. First and the last was dead, came to life. Now what is the characteristic of this church? They're suffering. They're suffering. And he even says this to verse 10. Look at verse, the last part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Now, Why is he saying that? Because some of them are going to die for their faith. Be faithful even unto death. But do you see the connection between who he is? Again, that's verse 8. He's the first and the last. In other words, he knows everything from eternity past to eternity future. He's the one that came to this earth and was dead. That's his crucifixion. And then came to life. I'm the resurrection and the life. 
How does that meet the need for that church? You're right, I may have to even die. That's what they're thinking. But I serve the first and the last. I serve the one that was dead and is alive. I, right? So the need of their life was met because of the sufficiency of Christ, the primacy of Christ. That's why I say we should be Christocentric people, Christocentric church. Now, think of a problem in your life. Oh, nobody can think of one. And now think of a characteristic of Christ that meets that problem. That's how, by the way, that's how we grow as a Christian. Okay, like, all right, downstairs, we were talking about in ABF how fear, the opposite of fear is, ABF class, love. And fear, a characteristic of fear is selfishness. And a characteristic of love is selflessness. Now, how does, so tell me about the Lord. Okay, so I'm fearful. Well, I need to, I need to connect with a characteristic of his strength, the I am, right? The sovereignty, who is and was and is to come. I mean, all those things have talked about his strength and his sovereignty. And when I get fearful and selfish, I go back to Christ and it changes who I am. See, as I get a better glimpse of Christ, it changes me. And so uh, hopefully that's what you've seen within this, within this book. It's not that Christ just gives some characteristic of himself. He gives a specific characteristic of himself that specifically meets the need of that church. Because he is the sufficient one. He is Lord. He is deity. He is the center. He is the master. He is the head. And so we keep going back to Christ. We keep going back to Christ. And he meets our needs. Uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll leave it then, but in 2 Corinthians 1, I want to, you may want this verse, this, talking about the Amen of Christ. All right, 2 Corinthians 1.20, keep your hand in Revelation, we'll be right back. For all the promises of God, what do you mean all the promises? All the promises, the Old Testament promises, the New Testament promises of God the Father for His people. All the promises of God in Him are yes. Who's the Him? Christ. All the promises of God in Christ are yes. And in Him, amen. In other words, so be it. To the, to the glory of God through, uh, through us. Okay? So, He is the amen. Because Christ lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose again, seated at the Father's right hand. Because He's the God-man. Because... He accomplished all that. And everything he accomplished is the amen. All the promises that God had for his people all met right at Christ. <laughs> and because Christ lives and, and our life is in him, we, we inherit those promises. Without Christ, no promises. With Christ, all the promises. He is our all. He is our sufficient one. That sounds so obvious. We're a church. We're religious people. We are Christians. We don't live that way. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time periodically, you know, catching myself. Am I really thinking of who Christ is? I mean, I have these little fears. Do you realize how he's the eternal one? The I am. Before Abraham was, I am. You know, all our needs are met in him. Oh, you need power, I'll send you my spirit. Oh, you need direction, I send you my word. Right? Oh, you need forgiveness. I died on the cross. I mean, everything is found in Him. He's the Amen. 
Kind of check yourself. Are you really Christ-centered? I, I, the flesh wants to, you know, be that whiny little kid. No, no, it's all about me. No, it isn't. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Okay, so he's the center. Number three, true believers in Jesus Christ will, you might want to highlight, will manifest good works. Mmm, good works. I, th- I thought it was saved by grace. Yes, saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast, for we have, what? You know what? I'm quoting something. I actually want you to see it. Let's go to some, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Yes, we've been saved, but we want to make sure that we are absolutely convinced that if we are a saved person, that there is a result to our salvation. Verse 10 says what? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved for good works. We have been saved by grace, but so that we might produce good works. Now, the reason that's important is the Lord of the church, the omniscient one, and each one of these churches starts out by addressing the church by saying this, I know your works. Same word, ergon, I know your works. For some of the churches, that was a commendation. For other churches, it was a condemnation. But I know your works. And when, when we say works, I want to make sure you know it's not just the external, it's also the internal. It's not just the activity, it's the heart motivation. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, like in Ephesians, remember, uh, Ephesians, or excuse me, to the Ephesus church. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Ephesus, I know your works. And he, he lays out a lot of works, right? I mean, your labor, verse 2, and your patience. And you can't bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, found them liars. You've persevered. You have patience. I mean, on it. I look at Ephesus, the Ephesian church, like, man, I'd like to be part of that church. Right? I mean, the hub church, the mother church. I was the mother church. First one that was started. I mean, look at how good they are. I mean, you know, if you didn't read it ahead of time, you'd say, wow, man, praise the Lord. Look, Boy, they were really doing well. Yeah, verse 5, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. What? You left your first love. That's internal. Everything else he was talking about is external. When we're talking works, we're not just talking the external. It's the motivation of the heart. So here he says, you know, see, there's that Christ-centeredness that we were just talking about. Yes, we can, we can be doing a lot of things, and I think at Alfred Allman, we are patient and I'm not saying we left the first love. I'm just saying we have to be careful that we don't ever leave the first love, right? The priority, the preeminence of Christ being the first in our lives. We need to, we need to be asking Him for wisdom. Again, we have to have good works. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this for you. This is James, and James is writing his letter... And this is what he's saying. This is what his purpose of this part of the letter is. Hey, listen, if, you're going to get sa- if you get saved, there's going to be a result. Good, ro- good works are not uh, what creates salvation. It's the result of salvation. Did you hear that? It's the fruit. It's the fruit. It's not the root. Good works are not the root of salvation. 
Good works are the fruit of salvation. And he, and he says this here. It says, And does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I mean, is that profitable if someone says he has faith and he doesn't have works? Is that profitable? And he answers by saying this. Uh, uh, no, excuse me. He asks one more question. Can that type of faith save him? A faith that just says he has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is what? No. No. Faith, if it has no works that follow, is not a saving faith. It is true that a person gets saved by faith, but true faith always has works that follow. Some of you perhaps have friends, family, relative, maybe even yourself, and you would say of this person, think of a person X, oh yeah, they're a believer. I remember back, you know, 25 years ago, they walked an aisle and they got saved. But you know what's the bummer of the whole thing is? They've never grown. We always say that. They've never grown. Well, James is actually addressing that person. I'm not going to judge whether they're saved or not, only to say this. True faith has works that come along as a fruit. So let's, let's follow on with, with uh, James. He talks about Abraham, and he says this. Abraham, I'm just quoting, uh, not quoting, but just paraphrase, showed his faith when what? He offered up Isaac. That was faith in action when he offered up Isaac. Offering up Isaac didn't, didn't save Abraham. Abraham was saved because of faith, but faith always worked. He even says in verse 22, Faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. One of the things we, we recognized out of the seven churches is true faith works. True faith always has a result. Or as the old... Um, reformers used to say, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And that's very important because in a world of easy believism, and that's one of the reasons we've been doing a whole series of uh, studies downstairs in ABF, saved without a doubt. In other words, how do you know for sure you're saved? Because I'm afraid that there's going to be a lot of church people, a lot of very religious church people end up in hell. Their faith wasn't real. It was a dead faith. They, and, and the scripture was very clear it's not real. <laughs> but we don't want to offend anybody. So we just let them go on. It makes us feel good. Why? Because at the core, what? We are fearful because we are selfish. We don't want to upset the apple cart and maybe ask Aunt Matilda a few questions of really trying to determine whether she's truly a believer. Because let's face it, Aunt Matilda went forward back in 1950. And nobody's going to question her salvation. Well, God will. Right? Number four. Each church has its own unique situations, its own unique struggles, characteristics, and issues. Each one has its own unique... You don't have that chart, do you so? Oh, you do? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I am blessed. <laughs> oh, this is a bummer, too, because I wanted to bring in a book. Oh, look at this. Letters to the Seven Churches. This was, this was taken from a book called uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's actually sitting right on my desk. 
I didn't bring it in because I didn't think I had the chart. The reason I bring that up is this is a promo to the church library. The church library. Like, this is just one page of the commentary. It's put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. And you say, who's Dallas? Well, Dallas is where Chuck Swindoll went to school. Chip Ingram went to school. David Jeremiah went to school. And Howard Hendricks taught there. Okay, now you say, who are those guys? Listen to family life and you'll figure it out. Okay, the point is... <laughs> now, but look at this. This is really cool. This is really cool. Each church had its own problems. See, this is the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and all these. And then they go to Christ. This is how Christ is represented. By the way, I use more than just the chart in my messages. But the point is, if you had this Bible commentary, you'd be able to say, yeah, I know exactly where John's going. And then you have a commendation. Oh, look at this. One church had no commendation. What church was it? Laodicea. Two churches had no rebuke. Which were they? Don't look. <laughs> Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then see, you have your exhortations and the promises. I'm going to see that in a minute, Saul, if you would. But the, what was my point? Oh, if you just look and you say, look at how, how different churches, you know, again, all the different uh, positives, commendation for Ephesus, lost your first love, suffers, Smyrna, no, nope, there was nothing that he said negative to them. By the way, when you're going through suffering, you're usually purified depending on God. Not perfect, but walking with Jesus, right? When you're going through the suffering, many times that's how it happened. So again, you just see that each church has its own unique set of problems. Um, and we learn different things from each church. To, the church at Ephesus, what did we learn? Christ is the priority. First love. Again, Smyrna, we just talked about suffering. Pergama, see, they were the ones that had the doctrine of Balaam and doctrine of Nicolaitans. You know what we learned there? Be on the alert. Be on the alert for false teaching. Then the next church, Thyatira, had that wicked woman, Jezebel. I'm sure, I'm, I'm just so glad it, he specified it was a woman and not a man. Women usually are the ones that fall into... No, no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Ladies, it was Don, not me. No, actually, usually it's the women that are more sensitive spiritually. But the point is that wicked woman, Jezebel, you know what they were not willing to do? Is to discipline. What do we learn there? Sometimes even church discipline is needed, right? That's, a, that's something that the American church many times doesn't... Oh, you don't want to offend anybody. Sardis? You know what we find in Sardis? You don't have those little blue things, do you? Oh, you do! Oh, see, she told me before I came up here you didn't have them. Oh, uh, let me see here. No, go back to the beginning. I, I didn't know you had these. i, I got to hurry now, too. Yeah, church at Ephesus? This was Chuck Swindoll. I thought this was pretty cool. Um, oh, let me tell you why I showed you that chart and told you that Bible commentary. Because it's in the church library, and I want you to consider availing yourself of some wonderful resources there. There's another book that I have on my desk that I didn't bring in by John Wolverd. He was the president of Dallas, which is like the standard in, the, in Revelation. And so you might want to grab that for a few weeks and read ahead in chapter 4, because so much of, uh, there's a lot of good stuff and there's a lot of great books in the church library. Phyllis, did I do an okay job there? <laughs> okay. So Swindoll had these charts, but it, it just showed the differences of the, of the church. Again, a big church, but lost their first love. How about Smyrna? Here, spiritually rich, but they were suffering, right? Nothing bad said. Well, uh, how about uh, uh, Pergamos? 
Pergamos, they had issues. Now, this is the whole church, but look at, this is how he represented, which I think is true. There's this whole faction within the church of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. Now, think about that. This church is corrupt. But there's always the remnant of the faithful. How about Thyatira? Thyatira. See, again, the remnant of the faithful, but you have the toleration party that's going on with the Jezebel and company. <laughs> By the way, you can find these churches. If you want to, I can start naming, I won't name them here. Okay, next one is, uh, where am I at? Uh, oh, Sardis, the dead church. D- the dead church. Now, actually, I, the reality that what, the, what this church is representing is a full church of, let's say, 200 people with 180 of them not even believers. And you just have this little bit of true believers, remnant of life, everything else. That's why he's rebuking them. Just a few of you are alive. Isn't it, wouldn't that be sad to be part of a church like that? People are walking around religious, but they're not, they don't even have true spiritual life within them. And then you have uh, Philadelphia. Holy and true, nothing said negative. And then Laodicea. This one's a hard one to represent. The next one. Just lukewarm, the whole thing. And as I said last week, I believe that it's still a true church. I believe they're truly saved because he asked, tells them to repent. But again, just a, and if you go around the church, some of you have been to a different church, maybe even members of different churches. Such wide characteristics. Sometimes we try to compare churches. We each have our own set of problems. <laughs> okay? Um, although, like we said, Smyrna had a was a good church in Philadelphia. Smyrna was a suffering church. Philadelphia was just the uh, church that was moving forward, and yet small in number. So each had its own. And uh, I think we'll stop there because of time. Just be encouraged. We all have to work through our own situation. Uh, number five. Number five. The real issue is not how you start the Christian life. It is how you finish the Christian life. And over and over again, he uses the word overcome. Overcome. Verse 7 of chapter 2, to him who overcomes. Verse 11, he who overcomes. And he says that over and over and over again. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's what we call the perseverance of the saints. You go to 1 John chapter 5, we find out how we can overcome. Or you can ask me that question from there. Ask me this. John, how can we overcome? Thank you for asking the question. Go to 1 John chapter 5. (laughs) Now this is real important. Because these overcomers here are not super Christians. I do not want you to see that as super saints. Like, oh, these are the really, you know, you got two or three of them in each church. No, no. This is who overcomes and it's found in 1 John 5 verse 4. For for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it's our faith that produces in us uh, the fact of being overcomers. That's real important. Our faith means that whoever has received Christ, that's just average Christian. Every Christian must be an overcomer if they're truly a Christian. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, they've received Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are therefore overcomers. That's, as it were, 
man's side. That's what we know. We are overcomers because we have faith in Christ. From God's side, I'll give you another verse. Uh, confident of this very thing that he who, he who begun a good work in you, what? Will complete it until the day of Christ. That's God's side. See, on our side, we continue in persevering for Christ. That shows that we're a believer. On God's side, he says, but it's really me pulling it off. <laughs> because I, you can be confident not in me. I don't want to be confident in my faith. I want to be confident in the fact that God is the one that saved me. If you go back to that chart, you can also know that this is, these are the promises. Oh, I can't read that. But I got my own little cheat sheet. <coughs> Those who are overcomers, to Ephesus, he said, will eat from the tree of life. That sounds like salvation. How about this? Smyrna will receive a crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. And it goes on and on. Every one of the overcomers are promised as part of their inheritance this specific thing. You won't be hit by the second death. You'll eat from the tree of life. You know, um, We'll rule with Christ. That's to Laodicea. So the real issue is not your start, it's your finish. Your family and friends that know Christ, it's not their start, it's their finish. We've got to be convinced of that because we have a tendency to get real excited. It is exciting to see a, the birth of a baby. I just had our fourth grandchild. Isn't that exciting? little sweet thing, you know? He has great uh, complexion. I can tell these grandchildren are going to wrap, each one of them have me wrapped around their little finger. You know, oh, you want that? You want chocolate milk? I'll go get you chocolate milk. Okay. But the point... Okay, but the point is this. What is the point? Why am I saying this? Why did I even say this? Oh, they had the little baby. But you know what? If they stayed the little baby and sat in 10 years later, in 12 years, let me get it out far enough, 15 years later, they are still in diapers, that would not be a blessing. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? So, Christ... Thank you, Mary. One person was happy with <laughs> No... We get totally excited about the baby, and we should. But you know what's really exciting? To see the baby grow. Okay? And that's one of the things what we keep seeing here. That's why in every one of these churches, this one, this one, this one, this one, and, and this one, those five that had... Excuse me, what are you saying? No. The ones that have the rebuke, you know what the word re, the, the rebuke is? Repent. Change direction. Go so you grow. That's what honors Christ. So that's the inheritance. Number five, six. We can only have two more quickly. Another thing we learned, the reward for eternity is far greater than any sacrifice here on this earth. The reward for eternity is far greater. Far greater. I like what John Piper wrote in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. There are a thousand ways to magnify Christ in this life and death. None should be scorned. All are important, but none makes the, makes the worth of Christ shine more brightly than sacrificial love for other people in the name of Christ. Now, did you get that? Nothing glorifies Him more as than when we sacrifice for others in the name of Christ. He goes on. A choice lies before you. Either waste your life or live with risk. It's the whole risk and reward thing. You know that. If, if you invest, you know risk and reward, right? You take a risk, and say, you know what, I might be able to get 2 or 3% more in return if I take that risk for that reward. Well, when it comes to Christian life, it's risk and reward too. 
Are you going to give your life for Christ's purposes on this side of death? That's the risk for the reward there. So the choice lies before you. Either waste your life or live with risk. Either sit on the sidelines or get in the game. After all, life was no cakewalk for Christ. And he didn't promise it would be one, any easier for his followers. We shouldn't be surprised by resistance or persecution. Yet most of us play it safe. Now hear that. Most of us play it safe. We pursue comfort. We spend ourselves to get more stuff. And we prefer to, get, to be entertained. We are tempted by the idea of security. The possibility, now this is the Christian dream, the possibility of a cozy Christianity with no hell at the end. Let me just live just a comfortable life, comfortable retirement, and no hell at the end. I mean, what, how, how much better than that? That's not what Christ is calling us to. But what kind of life is that really? It is a far cry from the adventurous and abundant from truly rich and really full, and it's certainly not the height and depth Jesus calls us to, end quote. Check your motivation. Are you just trying to live an easy life? With no hell at the end. No, Christ is asking us, you know, abandonment to him. He's the center. He's the focus. Abandonment to him. So whatever sacrifice overcoming takes from you in this life, the cost will be nothing compared to the incalculable benefits in eternity. I was going to have you turn to 2 Corinthians 4, but it says uh, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us, what? A far more exceeding eternal, what? Weight of glory. The idea is sacrifice. The only time that you can sacrifice for the Lord is right now in this life. Do you realize that? In heaven, there's not sacrifice like that. You are perfect. <laughs> it won't even appear to be a sacrifice. The only time you can sacrifice for his cause is while you're breathing on this earth. So sacrifice. And then finally, be sensitive to the Spirit's voice. Be sensitive to the Spirit's voice. Each of the seven letters ends this way. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Stay sensitive to the Spirit's voice. The word here means to attend to. Listen intently. It means, Lord, I want to know your, I want to hear from you, and I want to do what I hear. I've been saying this often. The same sun that hardens clay softens butter. The same word that breaks some hearts and makes them teachable hardens other hearts and they become just callous to the word of God. And some of those people that are callous could be sitting right here. Oh, you hear the word of God over and over again. God keeps knocking, but you keep saying with rational thought, no, I can't go there. I can't give up that. I can't love that person. I can't be willing to sacrifice. And what's happening is your heart is becoming calloused, hardened. That's why he kept saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I close with James's admonition. Uh, James in chapter 1. Uh, many times we quote this passage, be quick to hear, slow to speak, speak, slow to wrath. Do you know the passage I'm talking about? And we say that's about people. That's not about people. That's actually about the Word of God. Be quick to hear it. Slow to speak against it and slow to have wrath for it because sometimes the Word of God tells you something and you get really angry. What do you mean I have to give? It's mine! <laughs> what do 
What do you mean I have to love that person? What do you mean I have to reconcile? Do you ever get angry at the Word of God? Well, so James says, don't do that. But then he goes like this. Lay aside your filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness, receive with humility the implanted word. James says, as the word speaks, don't get angry, don't speak against it, but receive it. That's hearing. That's what Jesus means. You know, let him who hears, let him hear. Or have ears, let him hear. But then he says this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Oh, you handsome hunk, you. <laughs> By the way, most of you did that today. I would say most of you did that this morning. <laughs> no, probably all of you did. Now, you would say, you would think it really ridiculous if you in the morning went to the mirror before any makeup and like said, oh, that's, yeah, cool, yeah, you look good, thank you, and I'm going to church. I dare say some of you spent, what, five minutes in front of the mirror, some of you ten, some of you maybe, what, half hour? <laughs> you know, by the way, I am married to a woman who can get dressed like that. I mean, she is literally that quick. I mean, maybe not that quick, but pretty quick. <laughs> Some of you men tell me about your wife, like, well, it takes her forever, come on, let's get out of the bathroom. You know, anyways. The point is, is James, is, and they didn't have mirrors, they would uh, uh, buff down uh, 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 material. But the point was this. If you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, he just observes his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself, but then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That would be the person that goes up, oh man, yeah, boy, that hair is atrocious. Boy, I need high uh, eyeliner, and I, I need, nah, don't worry about it. They, don't, they won't notice. And you just, that's what some of us do when we go to the Word of God. We see it, we hear it, we observe it, we know what we need to do. Nah, God does, God's okay with me just, you know, kind of fudging on that particular obedience issue. He ends by saying this, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And that's why five, five of the seven churches, he tells them, repent. Change direction. Change your thinking. Change your direction. Go in a different way because I, you've seen in the word, you've heard my voice literally and I've told you what to do, now do it. Because it's only the person that does it that is blessed. So don't be the, don't be the man or woman that looks at the mirror on a Sunday morning and says, yeah, good enough, don't need the comb, don't need the brush, don't need the makeup. No, you look at the Word and you say, okay, I need to change, Lord. Show me and I want to be obedient. Amen? Amen. That's, that's the blessed life. Let's stand as we worship Him.